launch into the meat of this evening's Dharma talk, uh, I first want to congratulate all of you for making it through the first day. And uh, I, as I, I suppose most teachers also have the, a ritual of congratulating people for making it through the first day because it's not an easy thing to do. It's often, as has been reported in the past and I've experienced inwardly, it's often like a swamp on the first day, thick and heavy and unpleasant. I forgot who, whoever was sitting up front, just feeling unpleasant. And this is, um, this is not uncommon and it's, it's challenging to, to stop, to stop that momentum of um, busyness and becoming, and uh, this is why the perhaps the Buddha called practice swimming against the stream. You know, of course, we're not really swimming; we're really simply stopping. But it feels as though we're swimming against a huge current of our conditioning, and it's not for the the faint of heart. And it's very rare, as I was speaking about last night. And it's really easy for for doubt to arise about. <coughs> Why am I here? Any of you? No, I'm sure none of you had that today. How many of you planned your escape? <laughs> now, for many, it's a, it's a feast to be here. And, um, but for many, it brings a feeling of deprivation, such simplicity. Um, it's so no frills. You just be present. Just sit and walk. Where's the excitement? When I was thinking about this today, I was perusing some of my readings and found this little cartoon where the person has uh, gone up to the mountain to see the, the yogi, the meditator, the guru. He says, hey, guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. The guru responds, well, at sunrise I get up, I eat a handful of parched corn and start meditating and then at noon, I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, <laughs> french fries, hot dogs, banana split, pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska. I probably shouldn't even bring those words into the room. <laughs> But nevertheless, it really speaks to what our minds do. But I, what I want to speak about tonight is about um, where we're going. Uh, you could call this talk the, the Buddha's way to happiness and freedom. But as a prologue, I'd like to share a, a short question and answer with Eckhart Tolle. Questioner asks, I cannot believe that I can ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems. Eckhart Tolle responds, you are right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. 
pulls the rug out of our future ideas. But I still would like to talk about where we're going and where this practice actually leads, knowing that it leads, of course, right where we're sitting to that realization that we don't need to lift out of this moment to find relief. And in a sense, it is our habit of going out of ourselves in search that keeps reinforcing the sense of dis-ease. But we have such a practice at going out of ourselves that we do, it does feel as though we need to travel And it's important that we know what vehicle we can use to reach our destination. And of course, the destination is a sense of relief, freedom, the end of stress or suffering. Buddha said that he taught one thing, it's dukkha and the end of dukkha. Dukkha, stress, that which is difficult to bear, suffering, and the end of it not about metaphysics, not about adopting beliefs, about a direct realization, an immediate realization of the cessation of of suffering. I thought that it was appropriate to speak a little bit about freedom tonight, because at least My way of thinking of it is um, this has been Freedom Week, or it is Freedom Week. We have Easter tomorrow, isn't it? Easter Sunday tomorrow. And to me, the resurrection symbolizes the the liberation from from bondage. And then we have Passover, which is uh, the freedom independence, freedom from slavery, of the Jews from the land of Egypt. And, and it, I was thinking about this freedom today, this kind of freedom, free to meet like we have here, that we, it's so easy to take for granted all the freedoms that we have, the freedom to move, free to meet and to speak freely, to think what we want, to say what we want, for the most part, to go where we want, to get rid of things, to accumulate things, to renounce or to grasp. There's a lot of freedom. And as a culture, we have a tremendous freedom relative to so many people in the world. And we could call it a kind of privilege. And it's easy to take that for granted. It's why we have what in some circles is called the shroud of privilege, this kind of blindness that comes from not realizing how, how wonderful we have it in certain ways uh, and how others aren't so fortunate. And it's that kind of blindness that cuts us off from the, the, that sense of connection with all life and that sensitivity and the, the, um, the compassion that can flow when we realize that we don't exist ourselves apart from each other. And if one person is bound, then we're all bound in some way. And, but yet we shouldn't, we are very fortunate to have this freedom. And I think that 
that the Buddha was also in a very similar situation. As most of you probably know the story of the Buddha. He was very privileged, had incredible comfort and opportunities for, to enjoy himself in countless ways, and he wasn't happy. He wasn't satisfied. And we're not satisfied. And when I think of this, I think of the poem from Wei Wu Wei, it's a little sneak preview on where some of the direction of our practice goes. This poem called, Why Are You So Unhappy? It says, because 99.9% .9 of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> so the message and the teachings and, and in this poem, of course, is that we are enslaved by our by our self-preoccupation. But that uh, preoccupation comes out of a very innocent search for, uh, for relief. So all the ways that we've bound ourselves and shrouded ourselves and kept ourselves kind of dulled and entranced in, in the world, the general world of sense pleasures is really, in some way, a sign of love for ourselves. We've just had what the Buddha called misplaced faith in its uh, promise to deliver a real uh, unshakable relief. So the Buddha asked the same question as what probably brought you to this retreat. I have privilege, I have comfort, I have pleasure, but why am I not happy? I'm not, I don't feel satiated at all. And everything feels kind of, un, it feels like there's something wrong something not quite okay. Does that sound familiar? Often, it, of course, it extends to it's, there's something not okay with me. Or it becomes very much about me. And then everything becomes about me. Even when somebody comes in the room and makes too much noise, it's about me. If it's, they take too much food, it's about me. So it becomes this internal drama that's very... Um, it's very uh, agitating, produces a kind of restlessness. And all of us have a, a, a kind of restlessness. And this is innocent. This is human. It may be just the place that we're at in our, in our brain development. We tend to spend much of our time dissatisfied and wanting things to be different. Of course, this is nothing new. So fortunately for the Buddha, and I think fortunately for us, in our own version of it, uh, he came to, um, to a meeting with, he was confronted with what are called the heavenly messengers, the heavenly in that they, they awaken us to a, a possibility of, a, of arising out of our bondage. The heavenly messengers, that which turns our attention away from our preoccupation away from being so uncomfortable and miserable to a possibility of, of another kind of happiness and well-being. He saw the heavenly messengers of sickness, of old age, of death. We could elaborate on each of those, the inevitability of these, and what he called the, the um, how this shook what he called the pride in his pride in youth. Any of you have that? I 
kind of clinging to youth. It shook his pride in health. We tend to have a lot of identification and pride with our health. And then last, the pride in life, a kind of attachment and clinging to this existence that inevitably uh, is in a cycle, in, in a process of change and transformation. Everyone who is born will, will die. This is, uh, I always think of the Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth, the leading cause of death. So, as, as one teacher put it, we are, from the moment we're born, we're sinking ships. <laughs> have to laugh at that. <laughs> The Buddha started to reflect on this reality of sickness, old age, and death, and thought to himself, you know, if I am this body and mind, if I'm subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, to change, impermanence, unreliability, and why should I keep searching after that which is subject to change and unreliability? There's something wrong with this picture. Where's the, where's, the, um, where's the relief in that? So this comes to the point where we think about where we're going with what we're doing. Uh, in his case, he saw a renunciate, someone who exemplified a, a swimming, a, a going against that stream of just compulsive, addictive, um, absorption and uh, trying to link enough pleasures together uh, and then thinking that that will bring happiness. Uh, saw someone who had a, who related to this world in a very different way, not necessarily in an aversive way, in a negative way, but was in a wise relationship with life. When, when I was thinking about where we're going and wise relationship today, I thinking about this passage, and I, was, I thought that I would share just a little piece of it tonight from the Hopi elders. And it begins by saying, you've been telling people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell the people that this is the hour. And there are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? Are you in right relation? There's a river flowing now very fast. It is so great and swift that there are those who will be afraid. They try to hold on to the shore. They will feel they are being torn apart and they will suffer greatly. Know the river has its destination. The message that it elaborates on is that it's, it's time to, uh, to let go. It's time to stop whatever, to, to open our tight fists of grasping at misplaced faith and really enter the, the stream of life. From John O'Donohue, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its unfolding. So as we've been suggesting all day today, that it's really, when it comes down to it, not so important what you're experiencing. 
in the practice. What's important is the relationship, whether you are in right relation, the, the attitude of mind that you're bringing to what's present, whether there is clinging, whether there's tension, contraction, contentiousness, resistance. How are you relating to your experience? So this is really what we're up to with the vehicle of mindfulness. Mindfulness, its function is to begin to transform our relationship to our experience from one of grasping, condemning, ignoring or denying, to opening, to learning how to, to meet with a sense of freedom, whatever it is that presents itself. But it helps to look very directly, kind of in a, in a fierce kind of way, at the, at the way we're living, at the relationship that we have developed to the world of, of sense pleasures. The Buddha suggested that there are three things that we need to know about the pleasures of the senses, what he called lokiya sukha the comfort and happiness that comes from worldly experiences. And there are countless worldly experiences. And when I sit, talk about sense pleasures, I don't mean just a good cup of tea or an ice cream cone. It means all the amazing pleasures that you have of good company, of solitude, of, of this beautiful sunset this evening. But to be, what kind of relationship are you in with this world of, that is extraordinarily beautiful and, of course, painful at the same time? He said there are three things you need to know about this world of pleasure. First, to know its pleasures and to, to enjoy it, to enjoy this world and its pleasures. He said that it's not an accident that you can enjoy this world of pleasures, that it is the result of what he called purity of action, that your action, uh, that you've acted in such a way with your actions of your body, actions of speech, actions of your thoughts, just the way that you've lived your life, or lives, who knows, can't really know that. But that you've acted in a way that has at least freed you, that you're not so much reverberating from the effects of, of harmful action that you can't take in the, the, um, the enjoyment of this world, that it is the, it is the karmic fruit of wholesome actions, purity of action that allows us to enjoy this whole world of, of pleasure. Because when we're in a state of, of um, when, we're, when we have caused harm, there's often a great torment. When we've caused ourselves harm, caused another harm, when we've lied, when we've taken that which is not offered, you know, Sharda offered the precepts last night, when we've caused harm with our speech, when we've clouded our perception with intoxicants, it's very difficult for us to actually enjoy uh, this life and to experience the, that kind of worldly happiness. He called this, as I said, lokiya sukha. Lokiya means worldly, of the world, conventional, ordinary. He also called this kind of happiness, and this is where the second part comes in that we should notice. We should notice its pleasure, 
should also notice its defects or its dangers. Its dangers being, of course, that the pleasures of this world don't last. They're fleeting. And they leave in their wake a feeling of loss, dissatisfaction, and plant a seed. What's the seed they plant? Where's the next one? Where's the next sweet experience? This is, and ultimately, if we don't understand the defects, the limitations, the seeds that are planted in our relationship to this world, of this extraordinary world of joys and sorrows, of pleasures and pain, the, the winds of gain and loss, all of that, if we don't have wise relationship to it, we end up like our friend, and some of you have heard about our friend Spence, who put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> Sorry. This is why he says, that's why he has a new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment. It's, it's kind of cynical the way that this co-ops, this innocent longing for the purpose of selling hot pursuit of enlightenment and connect with Mother Nature by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. But on a more serious note, speaking of the defects, what in the Tibetan traditions are called the defects of samsara, this endless round, this endless cycling, this gerbil wheel effect of getting caught in seeking for the next pleasure. We've got Sogyal Rinpoche who says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As an 18th century Lama said, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to mi misery, we are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water, designed to make us even thirstier.
all coming out of an innocent search for happiness. It's not to judge ourselves for this, but to see that we've, we've applied a, a, a misplaced faith. And this doesn't mean that we have to give up the, these sense pleasures, the beauties of life. But like Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but an understanding that they go away. That we cannot find security in changing conditions. As I think this is attributed to Emily Dickinson, she says, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Again, that spirit of letting go, not holding on to sense pleasures, to, to control. The Buddha talked about three um, misperceptions that wind us up into that defect, into that, those dangers. The perception that what is the misperception that what um, is actually impermanent, we think it's permanent. What is actually unreliable, we think of it as reliable. And what is we take to be me and mine bodies, our experiences, are not, um, cannot be owned. They are not me or mine. Coming, going, our own bodies. As Jack Kornfield often says, these are rent-a-bodies. <laughs> so fortunately, the Buddha talked about a second kind of happiness, because it leaves us, since our whole, most of our whole existence has been this obsession with where's the next uh, relief going to come from, the next pleasure going. It's kept us going. It's kept us moving in that constant state of, of becoming. Um, and so where am I going to find that, that relief? The Buddha described Lokiya Sukha, this conventional happiness. He also described the kind of happiness he called, or freedom, called Lokutra. Lokutra means, I'll go back to Lokiya. Lokiya, although it means worldly or conventional happiness, it's also described as the comfort or happiness, relief of slavery. The happiness of bondage, as we get so bound up. It's also described as the happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. You're happy if, the, if things are right, your body feels good, unhappy when it doesn't. Happy when the sitting ends sometimes, not so happy while it's going on. So what does that do to our state of being? We tend to spend a lot of time waiting. A lot of time in suspended 
happiness, waiting for those conditions to turn out the way we want. When I first started thinking about this, it was during a time where I was doing a, a home renovation many, many years ago. And one day it dawned on me that, that uh, home improvement was endless, that there really was no end to it. And I realized that I was kind of holding out. I was in that state of dependent happiness. And so we do that in so many different ways. Wait for the weekend, wait for, you're probably already waiting for the end of the retreat and it just started. <laughs> but the good news is that mindfulness begins to unstick us from this dependency. We begin to awaken to that quality of waiting, what it feels like to wait, what it feels like to want, what it feels like to be uh, held hostage to how things are teaches us in that moment to be free. So the moment I make that shift from being just caught in waiting for the bell to ring to noticing, ah, this is waiting. Waiting feels like this. And I simply settle into the knowing of that. That moment I touch a different kind of of freedom or happiness. Happiness that doesn't depend on what's happening. Doesn't matter what's happening. So it really doesn't matter what your experience is. That's not something to adopt as a belief, but just to see whether you can, uh, whether it resonates, whether you actually feel that. Because I think most of our conditioning is we've set up a huge hierarchy of good and bad, good, better, best. Everything gets measured through um, and given meaning. Good sitting. Anybody have a good sitting today? What did that look like? See, this is a, it's a so natural, so human, but it's a trap. We end up then in wait. So this is, what, this is where the Buddha, after he started to see the defects of samsara, the defects of that loop, he said, we, it's also the third thing that's important is to remember the first one, to understand the pleasure that we experience, to understand its defects. The third, to understand what it means to be free of our dependency. How did he come to his own understanding? And I think this will be instructive for all of us, especially at this phase in the retreat where we, where sometimes it's, it's pleasant and sometimes it's not so pleasant. Of course, that's true all the time on practice period. But going back to his experience, after he realized he was shook, he was, he was shaken by the, a state of mind that came over him that's called samvega, this kind of shock and dismay of the futility of finding relief in this these changing experiences, relief anywhere in this fleeting world. And fortunately, he did see that renunciate. And he heard that there were around some teachers who might be able to um, guide him in finding something a little bit more reliable. And he went to the great teachers of the land, and he started meditating, doing very much the same 
activity that we're doing on this retreat. It's not by accident. We're, you would not be sitting here if it wasn't for that stream of, of uh, reflections and, um, and then the practices that came out of this one person 2,500 years ago. But what he did and what he was offered were certain practices that, that lead to um, states of tranquility, concentration. And this is a very important element of what, um, what begins to help us re, um, uh, remake or transform our relationship with the present moment. Because when, as long as our mind has such a tendency to seek after these unreliable experiences, they're often in a state of, as we've talked about before, in a state of toppling forward. And consequently, our relationship, getting back to what is our relationship, our relationship to the present moment is one of, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, one of passing through on our way to somewhere else, much more focused on what's next. Or the present moment's an obstacle getting in the way of where we want to get to. Or it's the enemy. So we've lost this appreciation that this is the only place there is. Past, gone, back with the pharaohs. The future, unborn. There is only this unfolding present. So part of what our practice of reconnecting, feeling the contact with your cushion, with your breath, with whatever is alive in this present moment, this quality of bringing your mind to bear on this present moment, it's called connecting as we connect, and every one of us can connect. That's a beautiful thing. And we can sustain that connection. We can connect with what's happening here, and we can stay with it. I call these two qualities, this connecting and sustaining, and I won't give you the poly words for them, but this I call the love muscle. This is what makes us able to um, feel a sense of, of connection. If I look into any one of your eyes and I connect with you and I stay with you for a few moments, we will develop relationship. We will feel there will be less boundary between us. We will just feel, we'll feel more at home with each other, more likely. We might have to go through some fears and some defenses, but this is a doorway to a feeling of connection and love, our healing our relationship to the present moment. So in his case, he learned these practices that would help him, as, as I hope they help you, connecting and sustaining, coming back again and again to the life of the present moment. And with that, done again and again, came this great welling up of joy and a feeling of great comfort, a feeling of rapture, and a feeling of one-pointedness, what he called uh, the the happiness of, of concentration or, the, or um, purity of mind. Because during that, as his mind was quiet, and as yours may be in those moments where you're just here. You know, last night I invited you, just notice what it's like to be here. 
Letting go of the past for a moment, the future. Just here. Feel the naturalness of that. What is your experience? Well, he had been sustaining this in such a way that the, that the feeling of that was a, of, great, uh, of great joy and sustained in such a way that there was the absence of wanting to be anywhere else, which is very kind of rare. <laughs> we tend to be pretty much wanting to be somewhere else. Can you relate to this? He described this as a super mundane, beyond the mundane kind of happiness. Pleasure, great pleasure, without any shadow of any kind of um, hindrance or unpleasantness for that time. And it could be sustained for a, long, a lot longer than, than uh, all the most juicy kinds of ordinary experiences called this, um, remember we had purity of action that gives rise to the, be able to enjoy all the pleasures. This he called purity of mind. Mind that's just, for that time, immaculate. We get little glimpses. Sukha, comfort, happiness. But then he realized something. He realized that that sukha, that pleasure, that sukha was actually dukkha. What's dukkha? Dukkha is unreliable in its unreliable form. The cause of suffering, if you hold on. That that sukha is actually dukkha. And some joke around and call it sukha dukkha. Because he realized, even though this was such an um, important, inspiring, healing, um, even liberating, a kind of liberation, temporary liberation, he saw that eventually, this, whatever that state is, whatever that delicious experience, would eventually pass away. And saw that this was not real freedom. And it reinforced the need to be in right relationship, wise relationship. Because the tendency, especially if you have any kind of legacy of having had experiences like this, what's the legacy? You can spend a whole, we, we joke, we call it carrying the corpses of previous meditation experiences. We can spend a long time burdened by the, by the wish, by the hope that we recapture it. We recreate it. And that really, that's a kind of grasping. It keeps us from really settling into a, an open, friendly relationship with the present moment and whatever's happening. So this was, in some way, all that was offered to him. This was the pinnacle, these great states of tranquility and joy of concentration. And he knew this was not real liberation, not real freedom. This was not really uh, the second kind of happiness, Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra Sukha means, as I said before, um, 
unstuck from, I, maybe I didn't say this, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of whatever's happening. A happiness that, rather than the happiness that depends on satisfying a hunger, this is called the happiness that is free of hunger. happiness of freedom. But meanwhile, he didn't know what that was. Later, I'm talking about what he later spoke of. So at this point, he didn't know what to do. And yet he saw some, some uh, people who seemed very sincere, who were doing ascetic practices, and he tried those, and they were very extreme, and, and he got very sick and very tired and very tight, and very... Um, very weak, and saw that the extremes of, of self-mortification and avoidance and, and um, aversion, really, uh, was just as dangerous as, as extreme grasping and uh, indulgence. So it's at this point he started to sense that there must be a middle way, and he remembered a time when he was young quite well-fed, comfortable, resting easily as a child in a, under a tree, and his mind was at ease, and he realized that it's important to be nourished, well-fed. It's also important to have a quality of joy and comfort. But later on, he realized that this comfort is great, but you don't want to let it overtake you. You don't want to get caught up in it. So at this point, he went out on his own, and he sat down under what's called the Bodhi tree. And so all of us are sitting under our own version of the Bodhi tree here. May not feel like that, but there is something actually quite profound that you're, you're engaging in. And in the same way as you sit under your Bodhi tree, he sat under his, and what was he faced with? What happens when we sit? Is our mind will say, when's the end? Our mind will say, where's the pleasure? Our mind will say, I don't, like the, I don't like the discomfort. It's really at ease. So we then are inundated with notions that we could be home, having a good time at the beach or whatever you do around here. <laughs> whatever, whatever your vision, we have the we joke a lot in where we live in Marin County, California, about the perfect Marin County day. You know, where you, if you you wake up and look into the eyes of your beloved and you make mad, passionate love, and then you get out of bed and make your perfectly um, bright, organic fruit salad, and and after you've eaten not too much, you take your hot tub and then you. Go have another encounter, then a game of tennis, and then some California cuisine, and, and by the beach or whatever. And if you link enough of them together, you're happy. But of course, it hasn't made anyone happy, truly happy. But the Buddha wasn't called the great sufferer. He's called the happy one. Because when he sat, like you, he began, he just decided to sit and not get up and not immediately move on to what's next. And he was faced with all the, 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 uh, the winds of his body, the, the pains, 
and the pleasures. He was faced with all those voices in his mind, just like we are, all those tapes. He was faced with the attitudes of, I like this, I don't like this. But he began to see something very clearly. He began to, to um, break up a little bit those three misperceptions. began to see that what he thought was permanent is not permanent. It's changing, ever-changing. And what he thought was he could maybe hold on to, his body, in a constant state of flux. His moods, oh, these are my feelings. He saw those were as fleeting. Thoughts, so much of the way we define ourselves. Again, it's like apparitions. But the more he saw the commonality of all of his experiences, meeting them without resistance, the more he saw how things come and go and could not, and that they can't, couldn't possibly define him because they were so changeable, his mind started to relax. He stopped pushing the unpleasant ones away. You can begin to get a sense of that when those moments when you're not resisting. He stopped holding on to the pleasurable ones. And he stopped because the, he was so immersed in the present moment, became so compelling that his desire to be somewhere else just kind of went away. So he wasn't in, no longer in denial, no longer spacing out. And so the whole world was still there. Everything, everything that we all experience every day was still there. But he wasn't pushing or pulling. His mind relaxed and he experienced this great joy of being in right relationship. This great joy of being a, a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was going on. A great joy of letting things be, letting go. We saw that things were very simple, really. That everything, there's just, when you see something, there's just what's seen. When you hear something, there's just what's heard. When you smell something, just what you smell. Taste, touch, thought, coming, going. We called this purity of view. This view shifted. Whoa, same things are happening, but I'm not just, I'm not so caught up in it. And that great joy of, called the joy of equanimity, serenity. He realized that this was the first taste of Lokutra Sukha, well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. So as he relaxed. You might as well know the rest of the story, at least the way I'd like to tell it. Because we will have our own version and our own, um, our own story to tell about what happens when we stop struggling. But in his case, as he rested in this kind of non-reactive mindfulness, interestingly enough, 
his, um, the more he paid attention to things, it had a very strange effect. This, this love muscle, this connect and sustain, this love muscle made his mind so bright, so luminous that his, that his mind started to shine in its clarity. And naturally, the more clarity that comes from the continuity of paying attention, of just being here in wise relationship, began to reflect everything very, very clearly. But yet, he was drawn naturally to the quality of his, of his mind as he just rested in that, in that sense of the brightness of his own nature, you could say. His mind just, in a flash, just opened. And then he realized that the very reliable refuge he'd been searching for was none other than the very nature of his own mind, unstuck from the world, free. Not found in time, but always here. The very mind, you could say, through which you're perceiving. And that every moment of our mindful attention fulfills, brings us right back. We talk a lot about coming back. It just brings us to our, um, our natural state, brings us home to ourselves. So I'd like to end with um, a Tibetan teaching um, that's gone around the circuit for a long time, but it seems to be ever um, useful. It's a a song called uh, Free and Easy. kind of caps, encapsulates everything I've talked about. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body and mind have no ultimate importance, real importance at all. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow the game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, 
It is always available and accompanies you in every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own heart. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emma Ho, marvelous. Everything happens of itself. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Um, we have about uh, 30 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.